The Ghosts of Mosman Park. This recording is based on an oral history project that was commissioned by the Grove Community History Library in 2017, capturing stories of the industrial sites that were once a feature in Mosman Park and it had all ceased to exist by the end of the century. The Colonial Sugar Refinery, General Motors Holden Assembly Plant, CSBP Farmers Fertiliser Works and the State Engineering Works were just some of the big employers in the area and all an important feature in Perth's industrial history. The recording begins with descriptions of Mosman Park in the mid-20th century, followed by some stories around each of these sites. It concludes with reflections on how Mosman Park's changed since their closure and what this means to some of those people who worked in them. Contributors include Trevor Thomas, Jeff Atterton, Merv Legg, Dennis Graham, Glenn Fruin, Bill Davis, Peter Winter, John Hughes, Paul Martin, Kevin Locke, Eileen Lawford and Rob Lowndes. Interviewing and editing was by Kate Patterson. area too there by the way and uh, you could have bought a house this is in the 60s so cheap anywhere in Mosman Park it was looked on as being really working man's area how things change wow knowing what I know now of course there's the sugar works there's the state engineering works uh, the old Rose Hotel now, which is not a pub, but that was a hotel and that was a very, very busy hotel for all the working men of the day. And a lot of men lived in Mosman Park and that who worked on the wharves, you see, and the, the stevedores. And, uh, oh, they had huge big work crews down there. So, uh, yeah, it was very, very busy. But I can remember uh, living at Thompson Road because the wharves in those days were so busy. New Year's Eve, all the ships at midnight would all blow their hooters on the ships and you could hear that just about certainly all over Fremantle and if it was a still night, you'd hear them quite a bit inland. It was a magnificent uh, sound to hear at midnight, New Year's Eve. That's all gone now. You don't get many ships in there and uh, it's all changed. Well, it was a big community then. Um, most of the people that I mixed with were well, either school friends uh, or, you know, working with the motors and everything. Um, the football team, the cricket team was all part of it, you know, and it kept the people together. Um, and there was quite a lot of rivalry between Cottesloe and Western Park. Even in school days, you know, uh, you wouldn't go to Mosman Park School. Well, it was a working hub, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I didn't really look at it that way because uh, there wasn't, I don't think there was any special uh, transport that would take people to and from. Well, the, you know, though a lot of those people would have probably lived in, I, I know Eric Chart's brother-in-law, he was a manager of, uh, the Holden uh, line in there. So, and he lived in the Mosman Park area. You can see the difference of uh, since they've knocked down, they've got rid of the limestone and built the homes. It's it's a thriving little uh, area. As I says, from even on the state engineering works, that all was limestone. 
and uh, right through, as far as we could see, uh, from out of the workshops, it was all limestone, and nobody would build on it. Nobody wanted to, because it was a better land before. And now they just cleaned, uh, scraped the top of the limestone off, put a bit of sand on it, or soil, and built their homes. Good foundation. Uh, Beagle Street, they used to call it 11 Beagle Street, but actually, when the numbers were allotted, the 11 was the lot number, not the street number. It was 21 Beagle There used to be an explosive depot at the bottom of the oh. hill there. The Harley Scramble used to go behind, behind the hill. There was a small cottage, it was only small, with Dad added to, added to himself. But while they went there, Dad could work to Mount Lyle for his works. Oh. <laughs> I used to go and pay off a loan that they'd taken out, so they might have borrowed the money. Businesses around there, you had the, the, the sugar works, the super place, mm -hmm. and then you had all the foundries in North Fremantle, so it wasn't far from any of them. And of course, just up on the hill, where are we? If that's the front, just up on the hill there, you had the um, army battery, which I spent a fair bit of time on push bikes up through there. And there was no housing or anything over there in those days. All that was vacant. Mm. The top end of Mosman Park in those days was uh, war service settlement. So I think there might have been a lot of, uh, a lot of those people. Bush, all bush, and the street ended at our house. Mm. Came from Alston Street down and it wasn't until, whew, I don't know how old I was, that they finished the road. But Mum had to drag us through in a stroller through the sand, up to the bus stop. I can remember standing under a horse in our front yard and there were sheep, but Billy Goat Farm was um, opposite us. They called it Billy Goat Farm, um, but it wasn't being used as a farm. But there were still sheep and horses around. Yeah, people used to keep horses in their backyard, even in Cathy Grove here, for years. And Mum used to get the children to walk over to where, you heard of the Yellery? Like a sand mm. track going down to the river, where the lookout is now. And she'd take the kids up there and they'd collect runners from the bush, you know, buffalo grass, mm -hmm. and plant them in the garden to get lawn going. Girls that I went to school with um, called me a snob or that we were rich. And I went, we're not rich. What makes you think we're rich? Well, you've got your own home. Because they lived in more service or uh, returned servicemen's homes, whatever they were called. I didn't know the difference. Kids don't. Well, see, it was a very working class area then. Very working class. Now it's not. All the nouveau riche have moved in, and I still call houses where my friends live. If I'm talking to my friend Beth, I'll say, you know, I'm near Henry's. 
Oh, yeah, I know who you mean. Because we know who lived in each house. Even though they don't live there now, or the house is gone, we can name. Now you don't know anyone. Neighbours don't speak to no one. I think a lot of people that live in Mosman Park wouldn't even know that there was an industrial site here years ago. They wouldn't have a clue. Well, it was, it was two different suburbs, really, because you had Hobnobs, um, you know, up on Hobnobs Hill. We didn't know them. And they're the ones with the money. And then you came down and then you had all the working return servicemen, all the blue-collar workers. And so it was sort of two, two separate areas. And we all stuck together because we had the ocean, the river, the river, and Peppermint Grove. Well, we didn't mix with Peppermint Grove. They didn't mix with us. So we were isolated. So we all stuck together. Presuming there was a lot of people that were war service people. And because uh, uh, when we started there, they were the older ones and we were the the new youngies. Yeah. Now we're the old ones in our street. We've been the longest of, from our section of the street, from Wellington Street to McCabe Street. We're the longest people have been living, living there, the longest of anyone. I suppose probably, yeah, because it was, it was more, it was more a workers' area, Mosman Park, to start with. And, uh, except the bits on the river where all the, the houses are hanging off the cliffs and all that sort of thing. But, but there was a, it was a big, uh, like a workers' area, mm. and, uh, but now it's sort of upgrading. Well, no one was very happy when they built the flats and uh, got a lot of undesirables. And, and there was a street there called Battle Street, and, uh, aptly named. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of flats there. And, uh, I think they've tried to upgrade things a bit now, but... There's still a couple of parts there that are not too good. And, uh, mm. so, but luckily we were far enough away from that. So, But most of them seem to be local. Well, you know, the factory was, well, you know where it was. Mm. Um, but, yeah, people just walked or rode their bikes home. Mm. Yeah, there, were, there weren't people coming from... Socially, it was that much more... Um, um, working class than um, an upper end when it's 180 degrees from where it is now because they were all they were all people who had all told you a million times I don't exaggerate um, but the people for example in Hope Street where we also live had large blocks where they grew their fruit their vegetables. They had goats to milk. They had chickens. I mean, there was there was a lot of that going on. Um, so um, yeah, it just it was just a, a pleasant place to be. Yeah. And there were football levels and and hockey. I think or um, yeah, hockey. Um, so, and I'd never seen a hockey pitch in in England. Um, well, other than a school for girls, but not men. Um, nobody stood on ceremony. I mean, Jack was as good as his master. 
there was very much that. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> people say, you know, the, the sky's the limit and so on. Well, it really did seem to be, um, which is one of the reasons I settled here. Because, you know, you, you didn't get judged by what you'd been previously or whatever. Oh, just a fabulous place to live. I was so lucky to live uh, in North Fremantle. Dad was a truck driver. We didn't. We were not a wealthy family. We didn't have any money. I'm sure they didn't have any money. I can speak for them. But uh, we got by. I lived on the beach, and when I wasn't on the beach, the sea breeze coming in, I lived on the river. Now I'm paying for it with all the cancers being cut out of me. Um... It was just a wonderful existence there. All the industry, state engineering works, and then the sulphur works, which was up further. And then the sugar refinery here, which was also a sewage dump. You're aware of that? There's a sewage dump here somewhere. That's a golf course now, 64. I'm going back into the early 50s. So we'd swim in Rocky Bay in the afternoon, and we'd swim in the mornings until the sea... Sea breeze came in uh, over at Leighton Beach and straight over the river after a sandwich, come back at dinner time. Fantastic. Now, the State Engineering Works had some fencing. These are all photos which show you nothing really, Mum and me when I was a little boy. But in the background you can see the buildings of the Engineering Works. Yes, it was a wonderful experience really because we had anywhere to play, as I said, the beach and then the, the river. And then in the engineering works, there were no restrictions. Nobody came to kick us out. We climbed over all the machinery, all the stacked old railway wooden carriages or box. Uh, as you know, the state engineering work used to, uh, works used to make manufacture, manufacture uh, farm equipment before the war. But then they, I think, uh, started making uh, Bren gun carriers and uh, troop carriers and things of that nature. Down the road from us was the uh, horse stables, where they had draft horses and carts. The horse stables, yes, they were wonderful. They had two or three horses, draft horses. These big, huge, big horses. Stables were opposite the Haywards uh, boarding house. But when I left there, if we could move on to the sugar works perhaps, when I was retrenched, I thought to myself, that's never ever going to happen to me again. It's the most terrible. I thought to myself, that's never going to happen again. I'm going to join the government. So I applied to join the police force and I was accepted. Uh, in 65 I applied, early 65. And uh, I was accepted, but I was told that it would be some months before I was inducted into a police academy. And I'd never done shift work. I knew I'd be required to do shift work as a policeman. So I managed to get a job at the Sugar Works, and they worked around the clock. So I worked there for six months. 
with the sugar works was a different area altogether. It was just wonderful there. They had such a happy fraternity of men, very, very strong union. They had good conditions. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my six months that I worked there at the sugar works. But I worked at the char end there and uh, uh, as you get older and you reflect back on a lot of those places, some of them weren't very cognizant of health safety factors. I mean, we worked amongst a lot of asbestos lagging, as they called it, wrapped around all pipes and that to keep water or steam outlets hot. And uh, so anyone who worked at places like that, yeah, you have a little bit of a sort of Damocles hanging over you for the rest of your life because of the mesothelioma, of course. Marvellous. Everyone was very, very happy working. I think because it was quite good pay and the conditions were marvellous. We were provided with all the clothing, the uh, overalls, completely covered overalls, uh, the CSR boldly <laughs> proclaimed on them. And uh, you know, it was just very, very good. There's just a couple of things I remember, of course, is that uh, the char end I worked in is where the sugar in its liquid form, like a treacle, uh, was actually drained through uh, huge big tanks that held 35 tonnes of char, raw char. And that'd only be good for straining the syrup through uh, for uh, 48 hours or whatever, then they had to be emptied where you had a big trap door at the bottom, you'd open that, and most of the char would pour out. Because it was sticky and tacky, there'd be about five tonne left inside, and uh, steam everywhere. You'd had no choice. You had to get in and dig it out, and that was very, very hard. Yeah, a big shovel and then a rake, and uh, you'd have to rake it all out, and it was heavy work because the char would be so cloggy all clogged together and treacly and it was, yeah, it, was, it was tough work. One sad incident I remember at the Sugar Works was a, a delightful old chap who was a cat lover and whenever he came on shift he'd always bring food with him and feed the stray cats around the factory. I can't remember his name but he's just a very, very endearing, gentle, lovely man. And one day, for some reason, he had urgently leave the uh, area he was working in and he accidentally trod with his boot on one of the little kittens and killed it. And uh, being an animal lover myself, I was aghast. But uh, he, just, he was just terrib in a terrible state, this dear old chap. He actually broke down and cried. He, uh, he just, uh, I've never forgotten that, those things that stay in your memory. He was such a lovely old man, it couldn't have happened, you know, to uh, <laughs> worse. It's terrible, but I remember that well. The other thing I have to mention about the sugar works is uh, the machinery was all made in Scotland, as most machinery was, for those big factories. The same as the, uh, as the electrical place uh, down at... Uh, South Fremantle that used to have it, Rob's Jetty there. 
the machinery all came from Scotland originally, and I've got to pay tribute to all the men that worked in those areas where these uh, huge plant equipment, it was kept immaculate. You could go in, you could virtually eat off those factory floors. It's, a, it's an absolute credit to those men that worked there, mm. how they kept that machinery. You could rub your finger anywhere on the machinery at all, and you'd never have any residual oil slick or anything left on your fingers. They were just all highly polished. One week off 23. Only fans, no air conditioning, yeah, no adding machines. Um, everything was done manually. I started off as the delivery clerk and switchboard. Then I had to learn payroll manually. And then when the computers came, I was data entry plus the switchboard. Then we had a systems administrator, which was the one of the accountants. So I trained three of these accountants to be systems administrator. And then when the fourth one came, I said, no, I'm not training him. What? I said, well, I've trained three. Why, if I can train them, why aren't I the systems administrator? Oh, So off he went upstairs, John Cameron, and he said, look, yes. Don't know why we've never thought of it before. Um, yeah, you can be systems administrator. I said, oh, okay. I said, and I want two job grade increases. Then after that, when anyone left, I got that job. 76. It always relates back to CSR. Um, they had things called blue notes, which the staff members um, could get deals like a blue requisition you can go and get paint and building materials and but at cost price with these blue requisitions and um, anyway there's one that I read they used to have your initials on them and I found one that didn't have my initials on it and I thought oh, I must have missed that one and in it was that females now were allowed to get home loans 1978, you weren't allowed to get home loans. Even if you walked in off the street, you couldn't get one. But CSR backed you. They said, yes, your job's going to be um, permanent. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether you've heard about Russell Leaf. He was the Perth manager. So I think I was the first woman to apply. And of course, 78, 79, 80, bang, up went the interest rates, up to 18%. I didn't have to pay them. The deal was, that if you got this loan, I think it was something like 3% or 5%. They paid the difference. They had a watchman there called um, Racconi. <coughs> I think we had two, two night watchmen, and they'd come in, and because there was night shift people working, and he lived in his car, in the car park, um, until we got a new manager, and he saw him hanging his washing out. 
mama trees. We didn't worry about it. But he said, can't have that. And he, when they returned sugar, sometimes I'd throw bread and a couple of cans in it, you know, just junk. And he'd get there and take it all out. And that's what he lived on. And he went to Singapore every year on the centaur. Every year. Anyway, this particular night. Anyway, I, I was in the flat at that time. And so it was prior to 76. I think it might have been 75. Um, and I heard on the news that there was a murder at an industrial site. In Mosman Park, and I went. And when I got in there, <coughs> police everywhere, and um, it was someone that worked there. He was on medication, and he stopped taking it. And he came in, and no one will know what the story was he said to Fred Rapone, because no one else was there. But he got in, and he was after someone. But just after that, Fred did his rounds and came upon him. And this guy beat Fred to death with a shovel. So, management. I never had a problem. To me, they were all the same. I know we got different... We were probably treated differently and got more... We had more advantages, but we didn't flaunt them. And, but it was a, a mentality of, from the workers, them and us. But it didn't really go around the other way. It was a couple of them that used to call the workers rock apes and, you know, and I said to them, look, you know, I don't like that term phrase. It's just, I said, and if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. The packing station, which was upstairs, and the 30kg bags down the bottom, they sort of had a dangerous job because, you know, the bags were coming through and they had to lift them up. Things were coming down in chutes to pack them on bales, so anything could have gone wrong. Mm. One girl up in the packing station while I was there, she, she had long hair, she was Italian, I think, she had long hair and she, I don't think she had a cap on, hairnet, and her hair was just ripped off her scalp. When David Bills was the refinery manager, he vocalised that he was going to stop the steam whistle from sounding at five o'clock. Val and I, Val's another one that lived in Mosman's, we both said, oh, you can't do that. He said, why? I said, because you'll have people ringing up. They set their clock to it. Kids have to come home with that. He goes, what? So he stopped it. The switchboard lit up. Had to put it back on again. Because you'd hear the sugary, like everyone called it the sugary. Mum would say, be home by the sugary whistle. 
we'd say, oh, what about the superwork? No, sugary. Because the sugar workers would go, but then the superworks would go after it. So you had that time in between to run home. Ours was a boo, and theirs was a like an air raid siren. Mm. I think it was an air raid siren, actually, superworks. And because there wasn't a lot of buildings and houses around, you could hear. There wasn't a lot of noise. And my mum could stand on the front step and call out, David! And you'd hear his voice coming from four streets away. Coming! They had a lot of bushland, um, which originally wasn't fenced in. It just sort of merged into where the golf course is. That was a reserve. And the bushland just went up. And then they bulldozed the reserve, made a golf course. And there was spider orchids and kangaroo paws and leshenaltia, everything. All gone. Banksia trees. And I think that's when CSR fenced off their bit because they were building a road down around the river, more houses. And <clears throat> so quite a bit of it was bushland, like surrounding around the refinery. And it was quiet, very quiet. And lots and lots of birds. The people on the other side of the river, I think quite liked it. I know my dentist who's just retired, Max Trott. He's got a beautiful photograph that someone took with lightning in the sky. Because <clears throat> it was gothic sort of building. Um, and the people over the river, when it was working at night, all the lights were on. It looked like a castle. So, and half the people in Mosman Park didn't even know it was there. Wouldn't have a clue it was there. See, all the trees had grown up, and if I said, you know, I work at CSR, they'd say, well, where's that? They think it was the CSIRO. I don't know, CSR sugar on the river. Where? Before it closed down, they, um, they got rid of a third of the staff. So about, instead of 60-odd people, they uh, went down to uh, 40 sort of thing. And then, yeah, they changed things around. That was a... It was a washout, that was, because they expected uh, people to do double the amount of stuff and it just didn't work. It was some a new system that they tried that you know, there's this um, South African um, bloke came over and he's one of these uh, efficiency expert things, I suppose, and that, that was the, the idea, you yeah, get rid of... Um, a lot of the workforce and then uh, get contractors to do a lot of stuff and, and everyone else to do double the amount of what they're supposed to do. And initially they used to come and, because uh, we didn't have the phone on to start with, and uh, but uh, they used to come up and the shift super would come down and knock on the window and <laughs> wake me up. But uh, as soon as I got the phone on, then they used to just ring me up. But yeah, there was... Uh, it was quite a bit of a, a hierarchy, but it got better as it went on, as the years went on and everything. They changed their attitudes, changed, and and some of the old the older fellows that were there, because they retired and so forth, and then younger people came on and 
they had better ideas and, uh, and they used to listen a bit more and, uh, and they'd discuss things a bit more too. Uh, yes, yes, it was. And, and the whole um, factory has sort of family atmosphere, I guess. There are lots of father-son combinations and brothers and things, as you'll have seen in some of those photographs and the names of people. Mm. Relations with the staff is very strong, or with the, with the workforce, it's very strong. In fact, the, um, it was a time when uh, Gordon Jackson had become general manager of CSR and he'd written a paper for the federal government. Doc Whitlam came to power called the Green Paper on Manufacturing, and that was a pretty major sort of national um, paper. And Bob Hawke was on his um, one of the people on the um, committee who put it together, and Gordon Jackson, the CSA general manager, was the chairman of that committee. Now, so it's called the Jackson Report for short, or Green Paper on Manufacturing. And his big thing in that was gate employee relations, and that was largely because I think the influence of people like Hawke and very strong... Um, behavioural science community at the University of New South Wales mm -hmm. who were also involved in that that paper. So it's big on employee relations. So I went over there as a, a, a fresh MBA graduate had gone to the same university where these experts had come from with a, a big emphasis on employee relations. Mm -hmm. So it was like a breath of fresh air in a way for the place because the previous management had been more the old style of not telling people what was going on and just expecting them to do their work. And we got over there and we had um, consultative committees and things and just generally involving the workers in the business. And I think that went very well. And, and people were a bit surprised that I was suddenly involved. And because Cottesloe, although it was the smallest sugar refinery in Australia by quite a long way, and it was, um, I think, about fifth or even smaller than that, the size of the big refineries in Sydney and in um, Yarraville in Melbourne, uh, its costs were amongst the lowest. Its, its maintenance costs were lower than any of the, the others. Um, and also its, its general cost of refining was pretty low. And it was protected in a way too because, as you know, in Perth it's expensive to ship up stuff over from the eastern states, whereas to go from the west to the east is generally cheaper. And, and so it had sort of a cost advantage. I suspect the main reason for selling it off was probably not on cost or efficiency. I suspect it was more just the value of the land. And uh, when CSR had been, it, it has had and continues to have ups and downs. I mean, I've seen it go from number three public company in Australia when I joined it to now not barely making the top 150. I don't think it makes it top 150 now. It's now just a really building materials company. But in rough times, it, it would tend to look at its assets um, and sell things and then lease them back or do whatever just to get cash. Mm. And... Yeah, I think you'd argue economically, for example, that that site was probably going to get a better return if you just hang, hung on to it because of appreciation in value um, than by, by selling it. But when they want the cash, that, that's when I think it would have been sold when times were tough. The big part of, of sugar refining is once the sugar syrup has been removed of the impurities and so you've got a product that's actually pure sucrose, pure sugar, you then have to boil it up to recrystallise it to form the sugar crystals. And that uses a lot of... That's the biggest steam user in the factory. And all that water that's boiled off has to be condensed. And to do that, that's, that's where we use the salt water. So the refinery is always located where there's salt water you can pump from the um, river or the harbour mm. um, up through condensers to condense that 
left school at 14, a lot of them. Yeah. Because that, that was the legal age. Yeah. And for employment, they, they went to places like the sugar works. Mm. But what happened with the sugar bags <coughs> during the war, the sugar bag was, it was really something. They used to get, <coughs> your mother did it for you. You know, a bag came out and you got this corner and you tucked it into that corner and it became a cake. And your mum put a, a tape around it and that's what you uh, ran and got your cape and then you went to the air raid shelter. eventually got employment at General Motors. Yeah, I suppose I would have been nearly 19 and uh, I was uh, got a job on the assembly line. Uh, it was very demanding work, but I was lucky because I was young, I was very, very fit, very strong, and I was lucky I always had, always had very, very dexterous hands. So the work I did on the assembly line, I, could, I found easily manageable. Uh, that assembly line at General Motors never stopped unless it was sabotaged, which happened frequently in those days. It would go all the time, tick, 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 tick. And it was our Lord and our Master. And every section of the line that encompassed a man doing a set allocation of tasking on the cars as they came through, that took up seven minutes. Now that was accorded a decimal gradation and it was all done by time and motion study. So the work I performed was given a gradation of 6.72, which was extremely high because time and motion studies really were ruthlessly, you know, they were tough on their measurement. And you've got to remember, seven minutes, the car had moved from entering my position on the line and leaving it. But I was lucky. I was young, I was quick, and I could race through my job and get it done in, in about five minutes. And the reason I used to do that is there were some older men further up the line, in particular, around the time of all immigration from countries like Latvia, Italy, etc., Greece, massive migration over here. And these, one old guy called Wally, and he was a Latvian, and he must have been in his mid-50s, and he had a terrible time trying to do his job within that seven minutes so being the type of person I was I used to race through my job then race up the line and help him and uh, get him through and uh, I can remember I had a union man on one occasion come and tap me on the shoulder he said Trevor he says we want to tell you to slow down I, I was stunned I said why I said that's just me I love work and he said, no, he said, you've been told, slow down, he said. And he didn't elaborate on that, but it was enough. Anyway, I ignored that and uh, I kept on doing my function the way I wanted to, so I'll go and help these other old guys. They had a whole area set aside for those who came to work on motorbikes. And they had uh, some amazing machinery there, some of these older guys. There was a couple of guys that had original Harleys with side cars, 
great big things with about a 1250 motor in them. And to kick them over, there'd be this great bang, and then you'd hear the piston go boom, 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 as it would chug along and warm up. This is only a week ago I ran into him, and I told him about this interview we're having today, and uh, we got talking. And he said, you know, he said, about that time there was a bloke killed there. And I said, well, no, I didn't. I said, it must have been when I went back to New Zealand for that period, between time of the two periods I was employed there. He said, yes, it was a bloke called apparently uh, a Mr Burt Whistle. And his job was to start the cars up when they come off the end of the assembly line. And sometimes, because everything was all new, they'd have a bit of trouble. So apparently he had the hood up of a, a brand new car at the end of the assembly line, fine tweaking it and retuning it to get it started so it could be driven off to wherever it went. And apparently a car behind, just coming off the assembly line, got jammed somehow. And the assembly line that didn't stop, still going, and of course it built up this pressure on the car, and when it finally got released through the pressure of the assembly line, pushing, 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 it just catapulted forward into the back of this other car, and that went forward, and apparently the, this Mr Burt whistle had his head down like that, and the hood came down, and uh, he toppled off and fell into a pit and uh, was killed. Yes, we had one chap on the line, Romano Nanny, and he ended up, he uh, left General Motors and started up uh, Nanny's supermarket in, in Beaconsfield, and uh, he's, of course, he's now retired. But he was very, very Italian in those days. He hadn't been over here very long. He had a remarkable tenor voice. In fact, he had, by invitation, sung in a couple of nightclubs and they wanted to keep him doing that but he didn't but while he was working on the line he'd break out into some of those uh, glorious old Italian songs and uh, O Sola Mio and ones like that he was very very good he had a beautiful clear Italian tenor voice and uh, that was a treat to hear him uh, singing at the top of his voice in this fine beautiful tenor voice my brother-in-law worked there uh, and they were putting on people and he said to me, why don't you come down? And uh, so I did. And I started straight away. And either 1958, 59, 60, in, in that era anyway. Yeah. They wanted me to be the union rep, but uh, <laughs> I declined the offer. He died when um, when my father was about 12 and then my grandmother remarried and she remarried Vic Blake. Um, he came, he was a war veteran from the First World War and I don't even know when they became caretakers at, at General Motors but they were there a long time. Mm. And I know they were there during the Second World War because they used to, um, he used to tell me they used to build pontoons and all that sort of stuff for the army during the Second World War. In the car factory? In the factory, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. 
and I know because bits and pieces of it ended up at our, pla- our place after <laughs> the timbers and that. Because we lived, they owned a house at Four Monument Street. They had a house there, and my parents uh, lived around the country for a while. And then they came back, and they lived. We we lived in that house mm. while my pa- our grandparents lived at the plant. We used to go there probably um, once every couple of weeks for dinner, um, usually for a weekend or something, uh, a weekend. And uh, I used to do the rounds of the plant with my grandfather, oh, my step-grandfather as he was. Because mm. um, he, he was the, the night watchman come caretaker of the place mm. and uh, used to walk around and check all the doors and in the course of being uh, that age and seeing all the cars half built and yeah. all that was quite an exciting Definitely. thing and of course they used to do a bit of cleaning as well grandmother used to clean all the offices and mm. that and I honestly don't know how long they were there but I reckon it must have been 20 years or so got a job on the wheat bins at CBH, so started there and met a chap there and when the bins had finished, his father was a foreman at GMH and it's not what you know, it's who you know, and I got a job as a labourer in GMH. Dogman, that's what I was, a dogman, Um, and you picked up crates and then dropped the engine, American engines that were imported and the V8s responsible for, well, with others, um, dropping the engines in. I mean, I'm not a mechanic and never will be, um, but all you had to do was tie the ropes on and, or the hooks and, and drop the engines into the engine bay. You, you've read um, Clive James's book, Unreliable Memoirs? Yes. Yeah, well, that's what I've got now. <laughs> so all I remember doing there is moving things with the crane, the overhead crane and then just hooking it on or whatever. So that's all I remember doing. But, um, yeah, so... The having, having worked in British factories, it was quite usual for people, when it was knock-off time, let's say 5 o'clock, people would start knocking off at 4 o'clock, washing and, you know, grooming themselves, having a chat, all this sort of stuff. And then they'd line up at the clock to clock off. Here, they didn't. They hid behind the machinery and the boxes and the crates and the cars, and they so they were ready to go at five o'clock or whatever the time was, uh, but they would hide. But as soon as the hooter went, they'd all rush out. I thought, well, this is a coward's way of doing it. So what I used to do was go and wait till the clock, and they thought, well, you're oh, you'll get you'll be in for it. And I said, well, you're, you've knocked off. I'm just here and first in the queue. Anyway. I got a warning and um, the second time it happened I was gone. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a, a, a 
a motor mechanic. And they said, I'll come in and we do a test. And I did a test at the railways, and then I had to do a test at the uh, state engineering works to show what I could do and what I couldn't do. Then I got the call up saying that I'd been uh, had a job as a wagon and coach builder at the WAGR up in Midland. And I had a mate that worked up there, so I thought, oh, that's good. Anyhow, two weeks after I got a job, uh, a notice saying that I got a, a, a job as a, or a apprenticeship as a fitter and turner uh, over at the State Engineering Works. And Dad says, well, that's better than going up to Midland. You can ride your bike over to North Mandel, and I said, "All oh, right, so that's that's how I got the job over there." Mm -hmm. And that was in '56, I think. Oh. It was, yeah, '56. Yeah, the work started. Uh, when we did the iron, the iron work was because we had all the foundry work. The the, the state engineering had a big foundry, mm -hmm. and they did all the pipe work for the uh, the. Uh, the waterworks and Muja power, power Station, they did all the big pipe work for that, cast iron pipes and mm. stuff. Mm. Yeah, so that's when I started there. And yeah, I was taken back because I'd never been in a big engineering place like that and the, the foreman, Bill Bruce, came up to me and introduced himself because there was two apprentices, uh, three apprentices, but there was only two of us. And he laid down the rules, what he wanted. He had to do this, this, this and this. And if I copped you doing this, this and this and this, you get a kick in the backside. Mm. So his name? Bill Bruce. Okay. He was the, uh, the machine shop foreman. Mm -hmm. And Mr Proper John was the fitting shop foreman because they both worked in the same area. And um, I think... Uh, Mr Hall was the general manager of uh, the uh, State Engineering Works and I only know, knew him as Mr Hall. Machine shop would have had uh, probably 30. Uh, the fitting shop would have had 20. Uh, the boiler shop would have had 20 blokes. And uh, there was the water me uh, meter work repair shop, that's the water meters, the WDIK water meters, we used to repair all the water meters for them, and also the blacksmiths, they would have been 15 blacksmiths probably, a pattern shop there would have been probably 5, 10 pattern makers, foundry there would have been probably 15, 20 people working there, more. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and the state engineering works uh, was uh, they, they, that was called the implement works, state implement works first. And uh, then uh, during the war, the Americans brought a lot of machinery over to uh, do work on the subs because they had a sub base in Fremantle. And they brought a big lathe that was a 100-foot bed lathe and uh, a couple of other big machines to be able to do work for the, uh, the Americans during the war. Because we, we did all the, the repairs for the state ships yeah. and we did all the, uh, all the dredging work that was done in the Fremantle Harbour at that time. All that work was done through the state engineering works and there was a lot of other... Uh, we did all state ship work. We didn't do it at all because we weren't allowed to make profit we were only we were allowed to have probably 7% profit margin on our work and the other 
people get the job. And because we had the big machines and the knowledge, we, we uh, used, they used to subcontract out and then they would fit it up and we'd machine it up for them and they'd do it that way. And uh, it was like, if we weren't allowed to take um, um, a newspaper in and read a newspaper, or we weren't allowed to do anything like that. We had, when we were on the job, when the whistle blew, we had to be at the machine and working. And before we knocked off, we had to clean the machine down and uh, make sure everything was ready for the next day to start up again. So it was pretty strict uh, working conditions, mm. but mm. it was good because we learnt a lot. And the old tradesmen that had worked there, they were willing. If you if you were willing enough to be able to uh, go and have a chat to them and ask some questions, sensible questions, they would sit and tell you what they did and how they did it. Because we used to have to make all our own machinery tools and stuff like that. They never had the the tungsten tips and the chip tips like they've got nowadays and the NC machines. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. We also took on, during the 50s then, we had a lot of immigration coming through and we took on a lot of immigration uh, people from England that came over because they, they, their working uh, machinery type of thing, uh, they would, um, started to slow down because they were sending a lot over to Japan and stuff, you know, different countries to, and they, they were coming and migrating out here and uh, working machines and the boiler making. And we'd get a... a 20 gallon drum, punch holes in it and put wood in it and because there was no heating in the workshop and it was all open to the, the river because the river front ran right around. Yeah. We were right on the river front and uh, we'd light up and we'd, because there's plenty of wood because they used to use the wood to heat up the cast iron pipes so they can dip them in the tar to make them last longer. So we used to get the wood and chop it up and put a bit of coke and coal in it and to have the fires in there. Other things that I can remember is uh, one time I was doing a little job for myself which wasn't allowed but you'd have to try and do it in between and uh, the foreman got it and took it off me and kept it in the in the office. <laughs> Never to be seen again after it was in the office for a couple of weeks. He didn't know where it went. But, uh, was back on the car at the, that time, it was a, an aluminium uh, rocket cover. And, mm -hmm. uh, I machined it up for myself and put it on and he took it off me and he says, you're not getting it, because I asked him a couple of times for it, and he says, no, you're not getting that. But it seemed to have got out of the office somehow and uh, got into the car. So. His car? My car. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, that was one little thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of other... Uh, what was the other things? It was always good humour there. We, at a Christmas time, we'd have a Christmas party and we'd set up the boiler shop and they would have a big stage and they'd get, have somebody in to play music and they'd be singing and dancing and that type of stuff. Yeah, it was other good memories. It was the relationship between the foreman... Uh, he knew... He was... He was the boss. You knew you, you didn't answer him back or anything. The, the leading hands and that, they were all mates because they came up through the ranks. Most of them were apprentices there and, and gone up through the ranks. Mm -hmm. yeah. but the, 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 uh, 
Yeah, the, we, we never had any trouble with any of them. Because of the, the area where it was, uh, it was... I don't know why they would have... Uh, yeah, I think it was because the, the land didn't seem to be worth anything. It was on top of rock. It was a cliff or all the way around where the state engineering works. That was a limestone cliff. Mm-hmm. And it was worth nothing because it was all limestone. So... I suppose that's why it was a government land and they said, oh, we'll put it there. Mm. Because also the, the train used to run through the, the front of the state engineering works and then up to CSBP, to the, uh, the fertilising place, and that train used to go back through there, so they had a train line supplying that type of thing. I suppose the uh, CSBP, they, uh, the uh, fertiliser mob would be making stuff for the war efforts and stuff like that mm. So. Mm. and then back out again mm. and if we made anything really big we could put it on a, a bogey and take it out as well yeah well, like you think of the middle of workshop it was ginormous and it produced all the mostly rolling ro- locomotives and stuff but they could build anything but SCW was like that um, they could build almost anything and did during the war they built tanks and and uh, we built, oh, I think we built a pilot boat for Fremantle Port at one time, and all sorts of things were built then, along with other simple little things. But one thing I always remember was what, the All River Project was on about that time, you know, it was a big project. And we, uh, we had to make all, a lot of the equipment that was sent up for the All River, all sorts of dam equipment and pumps and God mm. knows what. You know. And that's where the state shipping service came in, because state ships had cargo ships which were running all the way up to the coast. So the stuff was made in the, in the state engineering works and then it was sort of railed to the port and put on board the state ships and then they'd plonk their way mm. up to, to Wyndham, you know, for the old river and everything was unloaded that way. Well, it was lovely because being right on the riverbank uh, there, we, could, uh, we got the lovely sea breeze. Because as soon as cause it was very hot in the summertime, you can imagine, it was cooking. But as soon as the sea breeze came in, it flowed right up the river. It came up through all the, the works and everything cleared out. It was, it was lovely and cool, you know. I used to watch the little train come puffing around because the steam train used to cover that, that whole branch line used to come. Oh, the steam train. Yeah, oh, steam. So who trains, operated that train? The WAGR, West Australian Government Railways. Yeah, that was, that was their own line. And that line used to come across Stirling Highway. Mm. So at a certain time, the men with the flags used to stand up and all the cars would stop and little train would go puffing across the road mm. and all the work its way all the way around there. Mm. And they had, it, it, it towed trucks of all sorts of things, you know, stuff, produce going in, stuff coming back. In fact, nothing came with trucks in those days because there were no trucks, no real trucks. And uh, there was a big party and everybody uh, attended this big party and there was food there. And the thing was, all first-year apprentices had to independently get up on the stage and sing a song to the works of everybody cheering. And, of course, I was terrified that I had to do that. And I tell them in my story how, I, how we all went down to the Rose Hotel, us young apprentices, to have a few beers, you know, to get out. Get out. Uh, to quite ourselves down and give ourselves a bit of courage to go and do it. So we had a few beers, a bit all silly, you know, and walk back to the works and, you know, I, I got through it all right, but it was pretty frightening. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Yeah, well, you have to go through these things, don't you? Some sort of initiation, and that was it. But uh, mm. yeah, that was the thing. It was quite a good thing. They, the kids had to sing, and there was a bloke with a hand on the wall in there, and everybody sang along, you know, and booed and all that. Yeah. 
And once that was out of the way, good, you know, you, you've had your initiation, then you, you know, the old blokes were going to say, I did a pretty good job there. Yeah, interesting people too. There were so many different people around. Uh, from A lot of Europeans, the, after the Second World War, they migrated to Australia. And a lot of good technical people, you know, craftsmen, tradesmen. Um, every new apprentice was put with a tradesman for about a month before he got to work a machine. And in that time, there were the regular things like, um, there was a big tool store, so the, the, the tradesman would write a note and you'd take the tool store and get a special spanner for that job or whatever. And uh, some of them were things like a long wait. And uh, you'd give it over and then you'd stand there and they'd be shuffling paper out, <laughs> or camouflage paint. <laughs> well, I think he must have been promised a job. I don't know for certain, but he, he, he went over to Cumming Smith's, mm. they called it Cumming Smith's Mount Lyle. Then. Mm. Or late 1919, early 20s, yeah. Oh gosh, he worked there, he must have been there for oh, over 40 years, I suppose. Mm. He had an, uh, an accident there. What they did uh, during the war, they built these concrete bunker type things up in case there was a, an acid spill and it would flow into there instead of going down to the river and he was there with a 14 pound sledgehammer demolishing these and he swung and missed and he threw the weight of his body against it and he never reported the accident he ended up retiring on an invalid pension if he'd have you know if he'd have reported it he would have got compensation but he didn't report it or oh, very bad hip injury he was more or less Lying. Mum said, you know, you could lay your hand in the indentation in his hip. You know, must, must have been. He always had a limp and he, although he tried several things to relieve it, didn't much. So I think only as far as he did, it was a, a place of getting a living sort of thing. He didn't, I don't think he really keen on working there, yeah. but uh, of course they used to have a separate plant where the, the sulphur, you could see the yellow coming out of it, and during the war when they couldn't import the sulphur they used parietes which they mined up in the gold fields for road base. Mm. <laughs> Dad went up, he was um, the representative there and uh, he <laughs> he w had to go and you know they were giving a commission he also while he was the representative there he says if you've got any complaints I'll take them to the boss as long as you come with me well you don't have to leave your curtains up for 20 years before, if you put um, you know, your lace curtains up, you didn't take them down and wash them because they fell to bits. 
that was because of the soup works. It just rotted. But they just clung together so you didn't take them down. <laughs> if you took them down and washed them, because I had to polish the floorboards at home. And there was nothing between our house and the superworks. There was no housing, no nothing. And you couldn't see it. But I'd polish every Saturday down the sides of the hall runner, all nice Jarrah polished. By the afternoon, I have to admit, we didn't get many colds or flus. Apparently it's good. You know, down your throat. Although I have done a survey of my own personal when I got leukaemia. And I got, think I got up to 80 people from the river, where CSR, back to, I think I went back as far as Victoria Street, 80 people had died of cancer in that small area. And then I think they put plastic down and they put cement down. But people in Mosman Park know never ever to eat fish or shellfish out of there. And I know, well, all my friends say they wouldn't, they wouldn't build there if they were given a block. No. CSR's fine, but as far as up there, no. they used to bring all the tailings down from the goldfields, and that had arsenic in it. And the pyrites, you've seen pyrites? It's like a red. Here you have apple crumble. Well, it's like a red crumble. Mm -hmm. And the dump in Jamison Street, they dump pyrites from there on there. And they had a big pyrites uh, pond um, over near where the football oval is now. Um, danger, do not enter. Well, that was like red rag to a bull to us. We climbed the fence and went in. And we had it caked up to our knees. It dried like hard. And then we go home and we had it as a front path for years. Because mm. we didn't know, no one knew. It wasn't until they started digging there, they said the pyrites was carcinogenic. I went, what? Because all the kids used to play in it. Yes, that was always a place to keep away from because it stunk. Sorry, Mum. It was, yes, the uh, acrid fumes coming from that was always a worry. Uh, also, the discharge into the river was always a problem. You had to, when we had our canoes made out of uh, corrugated iron, flattened on the back uh, path, and we would uh, always avoid the, the um, run out from the, both the engineering works and the sulphur works, into the, just dumped into the uh, river, big pipes coming in. We'd always go well clear of that. Big murky stain would be in the river. But the smell of the sulphur works was something to avoid. When the uh, coastal scramble was on every year, we would always go up there through the sulphur works and uh, up to the coastal scramble on the Sunday and then come back for lunch and then back again in the afternoon. Uh, you had to go past the uh, sewerage dump, which was always unpleasant. Uh, we used crab around there. We would uh, walk around the top of the cliffs. It was 
inaccessible along the uh, the river shore. You've had to uh, walk around there on the top of the cliffs. There's always a track there, and uh, then we crab down on the uh, the flat, the uh, open water there at the sugar sugar refinery. Just fabulous. Mm. We'd cook them on the on the beach there at the river with my father and the two sisters and mum. It was, uh, yeah, carefree, wonderful existence. Because, I mean, we used to, from where our house was, we, we could look out the side of our house and we could see the, the chimney from CSBP and you'd see that sulphur-looking stuff coming out of the stack there. And, uh, but, yeah, they, I, I talked to a, um, a bloke that used to work there. He ended up working at, at the sugar refinery um, after that closed and, and he said there's a lot of stuff that just used to get poured into the ground so that probably would have leached down into the river because so, there's a lot of caves under there so I think they used to just <laughs> so but it took them a while to uh, to fix up the site down there and mm. put it into that big area and cover it up and was becoming old-fashioned and out, you know, their technology was becoming outdated and old-fashioned. There wasn't a demand for a lot of things that they could make and uh, they could be made better in emerging modern um, structural shops, you know, steel, structural steel and things like that. They could do a much better job and they were in modern places well away from town. And, and I think they, they offered a much better price and, and eventually they felt that the government shouldn't be in it. This is when the Midland Railway workshops also closed down. It wasn't the, the government's job to be in this sort of business. You could be in private hands. And, and uh, they gradually closed down. And they sold parts of them off. You know, the ECW was, uh, I think they they tried to sell it. But eventually, of course, it couldn't be sold because the, all those businesses had to go where they were because it was becoming residential. And we didn't want things like that there. And uh, times had changed and they had to go and they did but I think it's a pity that there's not a, more of a legacy or there was not more preserved, there was no photographs taken. That's the thing that stuns me too. You go around and you think the various museums and things that work, you know, the industrial past, but there's no photographs. Even on the, online, you go on the web, there's, there's nothing there. There's a lot of nonsense about but there's no there's no photographs or, or actually people. It gradually disappeared. Bits and pieces of it disappeared. Uh, I remember there was a great outrage when I was there. Uh, we have a blacksmith shop where they made huge blacksmith things with great big steam hammers used to make white hot metal into various shapes. And anyhow, we found that they, they were selling the steam hammer uh, to a private operator. You know. There was another firm doing blacksmithing and they required a steam hammer and it was, uh, the one in the SEW was actually sold to them and removed. Well, the, the people were furious, you can imagine. It was no longer operable. The shop was still there, but they, they, they took the hammer out of it and sold it to somebody else. That was when the place was starting to wind down. And all the guys were furious that happened, you know, selling our hammer to a, a private operator is going to make money. And, uh, but that's, of course, that's what happened. Mm. <laughs> Until eventually they didn't need them anymore. They made things otherwise. You know, 
that sort of technology. And uh, well, it's still used, but not to the extent it used to be. Mm. Everything was sort of forged and made in steel and stuff nowadays, and plastic. I was actually there when it happened because they rezoned it before I left. They had a big sign saying the council has rezoned this into R2, whatever it was for housing. They'd rezoned it a lot, lot earlier. Big sign was out the front. CSR must have asked for it to be rezoned because it was industrial. And I went up to Brian Moyle. I said, uh, so when are we all leaving? He goes, what? I said, well, it's rezoned. I said, that only means one thing. I said, housing. No, 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 no. I said, I didn't fall off the Christmas tree and walked out. And I think it was about seven, eight years later. And they sold it for a song. I don't know why they didn't build on it themselves because they had building materials, they had insulation, they had cement. But they sold it to Sarich. And they had all the trees marked by the conservation people. They had yellow ribbons around the ones that were not to be pushed down. He came in and knocked the lot down. A thousand dollars a tree. Damn, it didn't matter. All the trees, the great big trees that I think had been there forever. Big peppermint trees. All gone and now they've planted oranges, lemons, olives. I don't know how many birds nest in orange lemons, <laughs> but they certainly nested in the big gum trees. And I noticed it because there was an influx of kookaburras and magpies and woolly bagtails because the environment had gone and they'd moved over to where I was living. Homeless. I reckon they sold it for a song anyway. That was ridiculous. Uh, but uh, also the... Um, a lot of the machinery in the factory was, was getting very old. It was battling to keep up with production because production was increasing so much and it was going to be costing big dough to, um, to replace it. They did replace a, a lot of the smaller sort of areas, but when you get things like the boilers, because uh, they were 1911 and 1912, those boilers, and they... It would be a massive, be millions of dollars to put new boilers in. And uh, so I think the economics of it, um, it didn't pass muster, <laughs> I suppose you can say. No. No, it, uh, um, when I first went there, it was very pathetic, the amount that they put in and, and the amount of stuff. But um, in the, the last... Oh, so the last 10 years, they, they started another super scheme and that just start, was just starting to get good when I finished. So it really didn't get enough time to build up enough. Um, well, it's just very much an assembly plant anyway. Um, but it's just a worldwide uh, problem. The, the labour costs just got too great. But there were other things opening up, like the mining industry and supplies of, you know, the um, support industries for the mining just took over completely. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we became very much a world, you know, first world um, 
destination or a, a first world um, employer and so the rest of it went and then I, I presume that's going to go on for a while um, but everybody's going to have to wake up sooner or later but I yeah but mm. um, now things things will I'm not a rabid socialist but I am um very much, um, you know, not worried either. Um, but people are going to have to change their tunes because, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot of um, reorganisation of manpower. Oh, I think it's just economies of scale. Mm. Uh, it was quicker to bring um, as transport between. WA and the East Coast got better. Uh, it was quicker to put the finished vehicles on trains and that and bring them over. Mm. And I think it was just the economies of scale. And I mean, for a long while after they stopped assembling them, they used to bring them in complete and just store them there, you know, and, and yeah. bring, bring them up to scratch. I've got a feeling they used to ship them in too. Don't know. I, I, when I go through an industrial area now, I, I can see that nobody's making anything. They're, they're assembling it or selling something. There's hardly anyone making anything. Um, there used to be lots of people making things. And very few retailers, but now you go out to the River Lake and the industrial area there, there's thousands of buildings and it's just reselling something else. was always, to my mind, the most magnificent area on a river and to be used for industry was not the best use, I think, of prime land. So it was always, I, I didn't think that it would end up the way it is now. Marvellous and that wonderful walking track and cycle track there is along the cliffs there. I never thought <clears throat> of those things back in those days but certainly it was, uh, to me, an area that was underutilised and when industry went, it would have to be housing. But industry, of course, was uh, um, very close to the city and Fremantle in years gone by. So um, as we got bigger, well, the industry has gone further away. But the people who've got the housing there now are called, what is it, Minimum Cove? Mm. Oh, they'd be very... Very glad it closed, all of that closed along there. Mm. It's a magnificent area. We're not good on industrial heritage. Mm. Not good at all, no, we don't see that. That's why I think when the state engineer, when they cleared all that away and built all those blessed awful houses there where there's no, not a soul around, they're completely silent, there's nobody there at all. All these awful houses, and I think, well, we don't seem to have any idea of our heritage. There is heritage there in engineering.
we rave on about the country and the shearers and all that sort of stuff, but we've forgotten about this side of things too. Yeah, yeah all the old timers have all gone. Yeah, it's changed completely. It's become quite a uh, high class, lovely homes, nice area to live in. You know, well, that's all beautiful. Yeah. It was very working class, you know, in those days, uh, as you imagine. I went down there to see if there's any trace of uh, what was there, you know, because uh, I'd lived in Sydney most of my life, so I'd come back to find all this, this area's total housing, you know, and I went back there and I was stunned that there was not even a plaque or anything in that little park at the end to say, here stood the State Engineering Works that did so much for Australia during the Second World War, and the country too, you know. Not even not a mention of it. Yes, and uh, you know, on a personal note, yes. uh, I'm heartbroken to see they've gone those factories because it's like having, for me at my age, and I'm 73, from uh, well, I'm coming up to 73, it's like having a part of my life just wiped off the landscape. In other words, you don't realise how important it is to you. Uh, to go somewhere and say, oh, I used to work at that place or something like that, and you probably had that. And an older woman who used to work at the original Bones in Perth and places like that. For me, to go through Rosen Park now, and there's no shore works and there's no General Motors. It's almost as though I've had a whole section of my life just deleted and wiped away with a big eraser of some sort. And you don't appreciate it at the time, but it's when you go and think about it and you think, wow... I'm quite hurt about that, which is ridiculous, because you can't stop progress. But it's just your personal connection with a part of your life that's so far back has been gone. And perhaps subliminally, we do always long for the actual physical edifice to still be there as part of our memories and recollections. And when they've gone, there's nothing else other than the verbatim translation and that's quite sad quite sad can I go now